Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey everybody, I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Dr. Joshua Nab, thank you so much for joining me today. You are, I mean, especially for like a younger dude, the amount of research you've published, instruments you've developed or co-developed, your sort of footprint on the world of empirical research around psychology and religion and well-being is like so massive. I'm sure you very intentionally pursued that route. Am I right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, maybe when I started graduate school, I didn't fully realize the trajectory I was going to end up taking. I uh, recognized there was a hunger to dig deeper into the Christian tradition and to recognize the, the deep psychological insights within the Christian tradition and to have a dialogue with what is you know, mostly a secular psychology like, what do you think, what bug did you catch, you know, that, that you kind of went into it more deeply? 
it's a combination of, you know, my personal experiences combined with just what I observed and, and, and read about in the literature and the psychology literature. So I was raised in, I would maybe describe a more conservative evangelical home. And uh, in my early adolescence, um, my dad just had a complete 180 and ended up uh, leaving my family, going and raising another family. And so that left me really kind of in a tailspin. And what I would describe as a a prodigal period of about 10 years where where I maybe didn't get the answers that I felt like I needed from the church and didn't really feel like healing was there. And now some of that was of my own choosing and, and not being intentional. But I ended up in my early 20s seeing a, a therapist and that really helped me achieve some healing and and ended up recognizing that I wanted to to then give back to other people, probably consistent with a lot of therapists. And I really started gravitating towards acceptance-based therapy. So in my own life too, you know, some of the the, the nagging injuries, psychological injuries just weren't going away. And so I really resonated with acceptance-based, mindfulness-based therapies because of how realistic I think they are about suffering and what we're supposed to do with suffering. And, and it really helped me to, to recognize that I don't need to, you know, when working with my clients, try to help them fully eliminate their pain, but instead to help them relate differently to it. And so as I started uh, digging deeper into the mindfulness and, and acceptance-based therapies, I, of course, recognizing that mindfulness oftentimes originates from, from the Buddhist tradition. And, and uh, I have an appreciation philosophically for Buddhism, but I identify as a Christian. So that left me wondering, well, does Christianity have its own roots there, have its own writings and practices uh, that extend back millennia like the Buddhist tradition, given that many secular psychologists were basically, you know, kind of appropriating Buddhist mindfulness, secularizing it, and then applying it to psychological suffering. I don't know how to say this without saying too much, but I'll just say vaguely that I have experience with something similar that's been very disruptive in my own life with father-like figures and some big changes that I did not see coming that threw me into very, very difficult times. And so I'm really curious about that. How old were you when, when that event happened? Yeah, about 12. So I was about seventh grade, middle school, middle of middle school for me. Okay. On a personal level, I'm wondering what were some of the narratives or maybe what we would call core beliefs about the world? Uh, or about your family, like that ended up being disproven by that experience that you had to kind of work through later? Really, at the time, I might describe it as sort of shattering to my worldview, my view of the world, my view of who God was, God's role in, in life's events, God's presence or absence in the midst of all that was happening. How could, you know, God cause or allow someone who I thought was, you know, sort of the head of our household and the spiritual leader in our house to basically turn away and have an affair and, and go raise another family and then, you know, invite me into this every other weekend, you know, this hour away household. And I ended up just feeling really incredibly alone as, you know, uh, an emerging male adult. And so it views about God, if we think about, you know, theology, views about reality, you know, or if we break down some of the, the worldview, you know, uh, ingredients there. So, you know, ontology, views about, you know, epistemology and sources of knowledge and, and how do I make sense of, you know, 
these competing kinds of incoming information about what Christian men are supposed to be like and, and what I'm observing my dad actually being. And so uh, values or axiology, I'm just kind of going through a lot of the worldview yeah. uh, pillars. It's something I've been researching of late, but to kind of make sense of to have some proverbial hooks to hang this stuff on. And even thinking about my own psychological suffering, what was I to do with it? So yeah, just a lot there in terms of spiritual development as well as psychological development. You know, I, I tend to be an anxious person and and a worrier, and so I, uh, you know, oftentimes when I do my own writing and research, I'm my my you know sample size of one. I'm my own pilot research, right? So so often it's something I'm struggling with, and then I uh, sort of work backwards from there and assume other people maybe are too. But but you know, over time that led to me learning that I needed to really probably accept some of the anxiety, not try to get rid of it because it just simply wasn't going away given given the long term suffering that I that I struggled with. So. It's interesting that the shattering of your worldview seems to have been more about ultimately ended up being more about God than just about your dad. Why do you think that for you, instead of just saying, oh, man, I really ended up with a shitty dad, you went, you know, so quickly to everything I've been taught about the world from my Christian perspective or whatever is false. Like, what do you, what do you think was the, were the, was the connective tissue there? Yeah. I mean, at the time I didn't really know this, but, you know, as a psychologist now who's uh, dig, tries to, you know, dig deep into the psychology of religion literature and do some research there. I mean, you know, uh, an idea of God attachment, the idea that we have a, you know, a deeper experience attachment to God and and that that often corresponds with our uh, attachment to, you know, a, a parent, usually a, a father. I think there's absolutely this connection there. You know, a, a three, a five-year-old has, has really no to a limited ability to understand an abstract concept of God. And so parents uh, first serve that purpose. And so, you know, the, the father in my household was supposed to be, you know, sovereign, infinitely wise and powerful and loving. And when those things were taken away right around that time where I was starting to, you know, want to develop my own relationship with God, I think that that really posed some challenges for me in trying to make sense of a, uh, an invisible God in light of the tangible, you know, uh, visible father figure who was in and out of the house for a whole year and then finally ultimately leaving. Parental attachment, that's a really great and ripe sort of area. I know Crispin Mayfield, who was pretty recently on this podcast, just released his book about attachment to God. I forget what it what it's mm -hmm. called exactly, but people can look that up or Josh can, our editor and producer can put that in the show notes. It also makes me think that like what you're describing, I thought men were supposed to be this way. And then my Christian men are like this. Mm -hmm. And then it turns out my Christian man dad was this other way. And it's sort of like, you know, those of us who got the sort of 90s moralism drilled mm -hmm. into us around Clinton or anything else. And then it's like, oh, but like, we'll take this guy. And oh, all that stuff was bullshit. So what was it? And it, it sort of precipitates a, an unraveling. If they're willing to about face on this, like, well, why should I trust them on their theology? Yeah, no, I think so. I mean, the, the, the word that comes to mind, you know, coming maybe from the spiritual formation literature is Christ-likeness. You know, what, what is, what is Christ-likeness? Who, who's supposed to model Christ-likeness to me in the church, political figures or our community leaders, or how am I supposed to know who I'm supposed to be? You know, we might think those of us in this kind of deconstruction space, 
we might flatter ourselves that the primary issue that we are working with and that people are struggling with is is fundamentally an abstract issue about mm-hmm. arguments and evidence and mm-hmm. different perspectives and various views. And probably more impactful than that is just what people have you been around in your life mm-hmm. and what messages have you gotten from them and what they're actually like and mm-hmm. what they believe. And then you're going to believe the things that the people that you're drawn to believe, you know, mm-hmm. and the arguments people can do that. Of course they can change their mind because of arguments. And I love when I get to talk to people who have done that, but most of us, most of the time, myself included, I'm sure believe things because of the people that we're drawn to and what they say that they believe. If we think about the psychology of religion literature again, you know, the, the distinction between the God concept and God image. So God concept is really this abstract knowledge of God. You know, we might call it head knowledge or Sunday school knowledge. And sometimes we can stay there and, and, and interact there. But, but I think oftentimes we're maybe not as aware of the God image, the deeper emotional heart knowledge of God, the experiential knowledge of God. And that can come first from our human interactions, like like we talked about a minute ago. And so on a deeper emotional level, there can be this gap between who scripture says God is supposed to be, and maybe my lack of a deeper emotional connection to who that 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 God is supposed to be. Oh, I don't think I knew that distinction between those two concepts. And it's really giving me some language here to, I think, describe in a different way what I've described before on this show and and if I've been on other shows, sort of like the broad contours of my own de- and reconstruction, the, the process by which I was able to admit to myself that I was theologically liberal and therefore... Mm be okay starting a podcast, for instance, and not <laughs> not being worried about be, teachers being judged more harshly and sort of all this like anxiety mm-hmm. around that was what I call like direct experience of God through prayer mostly and mm-hmm. and some other sacramental experiences and continuing through the birth and interactions with my son. Mm. But the language that is helpful is like, basically my God image became secure because of those direct experiences Mm -hmm. or that sort of whatever, even if those experiences are not, even if God's not real, the experiences I had affected my God image and Mm -hmm. secured that up, which let me then be fully free in poking around my God concept, my -hmm. head knowledge could I be an open theist? Could I be a Christian inclusivist? Could I be, you know, universalism, uh, whatever, gay affirmation. The God concept was I was free to play around with that because I was secure in my God image, because I was feeling love and joy coursing through my body mm-hmm. as a result of spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. so interesting. Yeah, I think I think it can go both ways because we oftentimes, when there's a gap, right, how do we close that gap? Well, it, it might be that we have uh, an experience of God's love. And maybe then that frees us up to maybe take more seriously theologically, you know, God's uh, omnibenevolence. Yeah. I think we have those experiences and that can free us up to to interact more seriously and with, with sources of knowledge when it comes to God's attributes, God's actions, uh, God's role in my life. So, yeah, I, I would agree. 
those of us who were raised evangelical, it sounds like you, your upbringing is pretty similar. I think if anything, what we happen to have gotten in our time and place is a drilling down of the way it's supposed to go is you get your beliefs right. You get your God Mm -hmm. concept right. And from that, whatever God image you need, whatever your experience, your your fickle little feelings and emotions, Mm -hmm. they'll all come into line Mm -hmm. uh, under proper doctrine, sound teaching. I mean, these are these are terms that now almost are trauma triggers for me there. I, I now think of them as as so loaded with with horseshit. But I think that you're right that it does go both ways. And we're in a moment right now where we're having to sort of emphasize the opposite direction that like, mm. no, if we turn all that stuff off and just try and do it with our head, that's not going to work because we are embodied humans. We don't just mm-hmm. have we're not brains and vats. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think I think sometimes in Protestantism, the, that's the challenge is we don't have maybe a, a deeper experiential practices in order to to cultivate a, a more loving communion with God. And and so I think that that's one of my motivations as well is to to, to ask the question: Are there deeper practices within the Christian tradition, more experiential practices, to where people can can really cultivate a, a more trustful experience of God on a deeper relational level. You know, if, if I think about maybe the metaphor, thinking about cataphatic and apophatic and experience and knowledge. Just really quick, let me define those for people. So apophatic is like contemplation of God that does not attribute really anything to God. It's it's God being beyond attribution, beyond language and labels phrases that come up in multiple religious traditions, not just Christianity is like, God is nothing because God is no thing. There's Mm -hmm. no thing trait, you know, that can properly, like we could even say God is love and the word love breaks down into whatever we happen to believe and our time and place. And like, whatever God is, it is fundamentally beyond our language. And the Mm -hmm. cataphatic tradition would say, no, some of our language accurately, you know, maps onto God's character. And so we can talk about God and the the entire, the entire process of Western theology is a cataphatic Mm -hmm. endeavor, for instance. So I just want to make sure people understand those terms. I'll say imageless with few to no words, whereas cataphatic uses language and words and apophatic would say, you know, ultimately God is ineffable. Uh, and that words don't a- adequately describe God's more than words. So, you know, telling Moses, you know, t- tell Pharaoh, I am sent you, right? The idea yeah, I that, am that, that I God, am. Yeah, exactly. Even more conservative evangelical Protestants would recognize that at a certain point, we have to acknowledge that God is so much greater than the words on the page, even right. though they they capture with our finiteness and our limitedness an understanding of who God is. We need language to interact and understand things, but at some point it breaks down. So I think that's probably the the distinction. So thinking about, you know, getting to know a good friend, right? I mean, earlier conversations are going to maybe be different from later conversations in that earlier we're asking questions, we're asking about, you know, stories to, to, to describe who someone is, we're getting to know their characteristics, we describe them to other people. And so so those earlier experiences through conversation, through language is important to get to know this person. But at a certain point, I think, uh, you know, the idea would be we can deepen that relationship and 
and just have a, a drive in the car and enjoy the silence and just have a felt experience of this person that, yes, builds on language, builds on those earlier conversations, but we don't need to always fill the time with words. To apply that to specifically, for instance, Christian contemplative or mindfulness meditation practices, an apophatic practice might be something like close your eyes, calm your mind, turn your intention toward God, but don't use any words, right? right. You're just, you're, the goal is to remove all words and images. And, you know, when your mind wanders, bring it back to that point of attention and intention, your mm -hmm. turn towards God. A capophatic contemplative practice would be yeah. like Lexio Divina or centering prayer. Take a phrase from scripture, from a psalm, from whatever, and go, you know, something like, be still and know that I am God. Mm -hmm. Well, that's capophatic because there's something, mm -hmm. as I understand it, there is a meaning in there mm -hmm. that like embedded in that phrase, be still, even though that's a command, it's like when you're still, you will experience, you know, there, there's something kind of mm -hmm. inherent in that or yeah. doing the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, uh, have mercy on me, a sinner. That has cap, that's a capophatic. You could do it contemplatively yeah. to calm your mind and meditate on it, but it has content. It has linguistic and theological content to it, as opposed to simply turn towards God with no words, just a, you know, just look at him, basically him. God's not a he look at God, turn towards God. Yeah, I think, you know, the cloud of unknowing, the author or the anonymous author talks about, you know, reaching out to God in this uh, cloud of unknowing in love and placing everything else, you know, our, our thoughts, our images beneath a cloud of forgetting. And, and yet uh, the author does still uh, say to really kind of focus all of your efforts, uh, you can use a one syllable prayer word like God or love, right. um, you know, so, 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 e so even the cloud of unknowing does have some anchoring point, recognizing that the human mind is probably going to, you know, continue to wander and go all over the place. And so we, we need something to devote our attention to and to flexibly bring it back when it drifts. And so I think even, even in that, uh, apophatic writing, I think it, it, it's it's cataphatic in the sense that there is an anchoring point to something about God. Uh, it's not sort of, you know, nothingness that we're just kind of absorbing into everything, but instead there's a me, there's a God, and there's some distinction, and I'm focusing on that, but it's in simplicity. I think some contemplative Christian authors have really described contemplation as, as you know, thinking about the whole instead of the, the granular, uh, whereas cataphatic is we're breaking things down into smaller parts and using words, uh, language, whereas uh, apophatic is you're, you're trying to understand God in his totality. Of course, that's not possible, but you're meditating on something vast like God's love. Yeah, it, it seems to share something with the way that, you know, even non-religious people might meditate on their place in the universe or the size of the universe. Mm -hmm. The way cosmologists and physicists will talk about the universe in in, you know, quasi-religious terms and, and just like, oh my gosh, you just meditate. I look up at the stars at night and I, and I'm just captured by the enormity. That's kind of an apophatic vibe to it, even yeah. though it's not explicitly yeah. religious. The question is, what, what do we start with? Right. And, and I, I've been, I've been really thinking through that, right. As we think about, you know, in, in Christianity, what are, what are some basics of who God is? And I, I do wonder about starting with the premise that God is love. Yeah. 
you know, working outward from there. But, you know, as you think about God's attributes, do we start with, you know, God's sovereignty or God's power? Well, that might be a tough one if we felt, you know, uh, like, like, you know, in our own experiences, maybe there's some deep, deep disappointment with human figures or some trauma or, uh, or what about God's wisdom? Well, uh, do I really believe God knows what's best for me? Uh, if I don't believe God is love. So I, I do wonder that if starting with the, maybe a commitment, almost like a, an act of faith that I need to believe in a God who is love. And so I'm going to start there, even if my mind tells me not to <laughs> kind of a thing, because what is the alternative? I mean, if, if, there, if love is not there, then why, why are we going to yield to or, or, or surrender to a, just a, a, a powerful God who's malevolent or a powerful God, maybe who's wise, but is not going to have our best intentions in mind. So let me try and connect a couple things here, connecting it back to your biography. You have this upbringing and it is quite cataphatic in nature. It is, it is very God concept. It's not yeah. very God image. And it's like, believe the right things. This is what Christian men do. This is the structure we have. Your dad goes, does a 180, shatters that. And you mentioned that coming out of your 20s after this sort of fallow period, after working with a therapist, getting interested in this stuff, you thought, huh, eventually learning to accept the kind of pain and anxiety that is with you, that relates to this story. Are there Christian versions of this thing that I know is Buddhist or is related mm -hmm. to Buddhism. The connection I'm trying to make is, is there a move there from the autobiography to go, okay, I need something that's more God image speaking back to God concept. Because when mm -hmm. I went God concept to God image, when I went mind theology to experiential, that linkage was broken and there's trauma and pain there. Can I go the other direction where I'm doing something practical and I'm accepting the world as it is and maybe rebuilding something back. Have I made too many connections or does that sound about right? No. Yeah. I mean, I was fascinated by the idea of surrender because uh, I, I got to this point where I was in such pain that that's all I could do. Just, just, and if God, if you're out there, I'm crying out and, and surrendering everything I have to you. I don't know what to do with this. Right. So, so control didn't work trying to micromanage didn't work. Coping skills didn't work. Uh, for me, it, it, there was sort of a psychological experience of rock bottom. The, the, the only way forward was to accept and to surrender. And so I think there was that experience and I got my hands on, maybe I was Googling, I don't remember, but there, there's a, a Jesuit work from probably three, 400 years ago called Trustful Surrender to Divine Providence. And the, the, the author basically says that the secret, to, the subtitle is the secret to peace and happiness. And that got my attention. Wow, I, I want to be peaceful. I want to be happy. And he basically makes the point that trusting in God's providential care is key. And I found that many, many, many Christians throughout the ages as really a response to suffering use the language of surrender. And so that I was just absolutely fascinated by that. Uh, and, and so I would say that surrendering to divine providence is the equivalent of mindfulness-based acceptance for, for Christianity. This, this deep surrender, this deep trustful surrender to God. Now, that, that does get us into some theology, you know, uh, yeah. uh, does, does God cause or allow suffering? My reading of many of those works is that 
the God is the author of all events. Now that's going to be tough for some people, but I think there's a, there are parallels in Buddhism, looking at karma or the law of cause and effect. Uh, there are even parallels in the psychology literature where we look at like the post-traumatic growth literature where people look back on a traumatic experience and reframe it as growth producing. Mm. So so this deeper trust that, that, that God is active and present and moving and orchestrating, that God's a good governor who plays a role in all of events. You know, the Jesuit saying is finding God in all things, even suffering. If you'd like more You Have Permission, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash dancoke. That link is in the show notes. Patrons get at least two additional episodes per month exclusive to them, as well as access to the patron-only Facebook group, which is an awesome little online community for talking through all the crap that we are thinking as our faiths and our lives change. Um, It's a great, great community. So again, patreon.com slash Dan Coke, five bucks a month, uh, support something that you care about and join the community. Back to the episode. I am convinced by the theologians who say that the God of classical theism, the God who does basically hold all the world events, all of world history in God's hands and, and more or less does it right. And maybe theologians can quibble with how I'm phrasing some of this, but the mm-hmm. idea that, yeah, when people go, Oh God did do that in God's infinite wisdom. I think that there are good reasons to worry about the sort of large scale and small scale effects of that description of God. Mm-hmm. And I, I know some of that post-traumatic growth literature and how, you know, Christian believers who've been through something really bad, one of the ways that they show growth is by finding what may have been God's purpose. An example from some of the literature I read was like after Hurricane Katrina, you know, saying something like, well, that was really bad, uh, but maybe God caused it to bring our community together. Mm-hmm. So something like that, you can take out God caused it. You can still find God in all things, including mm-hmm. suffering, mm-hmm. but you could do it with more of a liberation theology lens of something like, where is God in it? If God is in everything, where is God specifically? Well, mm-hmm. God is with the people who are suffering, yeah. whose homes were built in a shitty part of town that can't withstand a flood. God is with the peasants being driven from their land through eminent domain by an unjust government Mm -hmm. trying to modernize, you know, like God is with the disappeared in Latin America. God is on the tree lynched with the slave who disobeyed. Yeah. So we don't need to solve that theological dichotomy here, but from a psychological perspective, from a clinical perspective, for a client, for a person who's who's trying to grow, is God is with the sufferer as psychologically powerful as God planned this and God knows best? Is there enough surrender in the former to get the work done that the person might need? So I, I think psychologically, you know, I wonder about starting with God's love 
and then moving to God's presence. And I wonder if that gets us pretty far. Yeah. Because I I tend to think that that so much of of what's devastating about trauma is the aloneness. It's being all alone in the experience and then and then making interpretations about what that means about me and other people and life and the world and my place in it and I wrote a, a chapter uh, in, a, in a book, basically Christian psychology, but it was, I titled it Walking Home with God. I wonder if that's really what life is about is, is seeing that, that whether we're, you know, on a path that has, you know, holes and, 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 you know, maybe we're walking close to the edge of the cliff and that throughout life, that it's about fellowshipping and communing with God, that, that it's, that, that God is with us, Emmanuel and that God is loving us each step of the way. Just this idea that God is with me and a traveling companion and, and compassionately responding to and, and, and uh, present to my suffering. I, I do think that's extremely powerful because for many Christians, there's this idea that God is punishing me or, or absent or doesn't care, even apathetic. You know, maybe God's not punishing me. Maybe right. God doesn't see that I'm evil, but it's just like indifferent you know, sort of out there. Almost Where like was God? And, right. Yeah. Yeah. God, God just created the world and then just kind of is too busy for me. But instead that, that a personal God intervenes, that a personal God, you know, entered into human history, that a personal God interacted with in the Old Testament with his chosen people, that there's a personal God there who's loving and present. So I, I do think that that can get us pretty far, especially in the context of things like trauma, depression, anxiety, psychological suffering. Speaking psychologically, are there theological commitments or defaults that people are raised with and therefore they imbibe that actually get in the way of, for instance, starting with God is love? Like they might know that that's in the Bible, that that Mm -hmm. is a verse that you're quoting, but they might not be able to actually believe it because of all the other stuff that they believe. You could in theory, test those out. I love the idea of starting with God as love. That feels to me like maybe like the best starting point. Mm -hmm. It encompasses so much. It's a direct quote from scripture, but are there things that might even get in the way for people being able to start there? Not really believing Mm -hmm. that, you know, or, you know, roadblocks or something. I think so. I mean, if we go back to human experiences and and we haven't maybe personally had an experience of someone else's love, whether it's altruistic love or just someone's care, I think it becomes difficult to then look toward the abstract concept of a God uh, who is loving. So I think you're right. So that's the question is, how does someone begin, right? How does someone take that first step, you know, experientially uh, and I, that's where I think maybe therapy comes in. Uh, and as therapists, even if we don't bring God into the room, just offering a, a caring, loving responsiveness can can free someone up to to have that experience, to maybe open them up to be, you know, cognitively, you know, more receptive to God's attributes coming from Scripture, starting with love. So, yeah, I, I think that that experience is why, which is why, you know, we need to be Christ-like in all we do, and and you never know how maybe just a, a loving interaction with someone can can maybe at times free them up to begin to to consider alternatives to who God is. And so, so I, I wonder there if that's a starting point, if, if having that deeper experience frees people up to then align their 
uh, we'll say maybe emotional world with their cognitive world. Correct me if I'm wrong here, just as someone still learning, but yeah. what doesn't attachment theory give us a sort of a mechanism for why that might work and be the case that essentially the therapist can act as a temporary secure attachment figure. And when we feel in the presence of a secure attachment figure, and if we shower our clients with enough unconditional positive regard, you know, that's the kind of love that the Christian tradition ascribes to God. It is unconditional love. That's often missing. When we get into our religious communities, there are often quite a few conditions for God's mm-hmm. love. But there is a stream of the text that is very clearly about unconditional love. Yeah. And so that that's how I kind of combine the sort of person-centered approach with Christian theology in a very basic sense. So, I mean, is that giving us sort of a mechanism for understanding why that might work? That it's it's whatever is going on with attachment, it's probably the same part of the brain or something like that? You know, in psychodynamic language, we call it reparenting, right? The, the newer experience between therapist and client can actually, you know, help clients to, to begin to relate to other people differently as well. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, in, in therapy, we might talk about what's called, a, you know, a, the circle of security and attachment theory, which is, you know, we are our first a secure base for our clients to launch out from paralleling, you know, the the good enough caregiver early on, if that caregiver is present, that the child needs the caregiver to launch out from to explore the world looking back, right? And that creates a, a sense of like safe exploration. And then when the world becomes dangerous, you know, the infant, you know, bumping its head on the coffee table, you know, when it's trying to, to, to you know, climb up and, and walk or or the adult who goes out for a job interview doesn't get it and, and, you know, signals to the spouse, you know, I had a rough day. Can you just still tell me you love me? Or, or the Christian with God, right? We're exploring and we cry out to God. We, we need that secure base and then to come back to that same person as a, a safe haven, a source of soothing comfort. It's not as though the world is a perfectly safe place, but when there's suffering, when there's danger, we have someone to come back to, to soothe and comfort us. And so in therapy, I think that's what the therapeutic relationship becomes to give someone a deeper experience of that secure attachment and to maybe even replace, if you will, to use overly simplistic language, but to replace that those earlier experiences, those emotional conclusions that 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 I need to be on my own, uh, and, and then maybe that frees us up to begin to experience God as a secure base and safe haven. That now, of course, we don't launch out from God from a traditional Christian perspective. God is uh, omnipresent. But the idea that God is with me, if we turn to that idea of walking home with God, that that I'm a sojourner walking through this sometimes strange and foreign land with all this suffering, but that there's, I have a destination in mind. I think about the secure-based safe haven dynamic to kind of bring it back, as well as this idea of walking home with God in that context, first starting with human relationships then maybe building on it to have a deeper experience with God and then to, to, to be able to see where I'm headed in my relationship with him. Yeah. I can't help, but pick up on that seeing where we're headed a bit. I mean, I'm, I'm curious about what you found in the Buddhist inflected traditions of sort of mindful acceptance. I know there in some Buddhist, you know, sub traditions, there is a cycle that's moving toward Nirvana and maybe most of the traditions. And then like my understanding of Zen Buddhism is a bit less sort of supernatural than that, a bit more brass tacks, boots on the ground. Certainly Christianity has that kind of eschatological hope 
toward the end, the end of the story, and different theologies will sort of posit different mechanisms by which God accomplishes that. But it's it's the orientation, right? It is the orientation of a Christian theology is, is toward that kind of a hope. That's probably like my biggest theological hurdle is, mm-hmm. you know, at a, at a God concept level, at an abstract level, is feeling confident that there is going to be something after I die. That's the hardest bit for me to feel good about. I feel... I feel much more secure in the idea or confident about the idea that like there is a divine presence that is available to me and other people because I experience mm-hmm. that presence. I either experience mm-hmm. that presence or what passes for that presence that billions of other people have experienced and written about over the millennia. So I, I'm confident about that. We could all be deluded, but at least I'm deluded in the same way as all these saints have been deluded and I'll... That's the path of delusion that I choose over the other path of delusion. Mm-hmm. But the the life after death thing, the the experience when my brain stops firing, you know, has no electricity anymore. Uh, that part is harder for me. What might be the clinical implications? You know, if I were your client, what would you then be looking for that that I might run into as someone who who struggles with that? Where is that going to where might that connect with some mental health distress or pathology of some sort or trouble flourishing? The the word that comes to mind as we compare and contrast these different practices and the psychological implications is, you know, uh, teleology coming from worldview or telos, right? What's the ultimate goal or purpose of these practices? Where are we headed? Uh, what direction are we headed in? You know, from a maybe traditional Protestant perspective, we might say, you know, moving from uh, justification to sanctification to glorification, right? We're, you know, justified, we're made right with God, we can now walk with God, God's a friend, God's not an enemy, then we're becoming holy and more like Christ, you know, sanctification, and that's where I think these practices can be utilized, the spiritual discipline, spiritual formation, you know, formation into the image of Christ, and then and then the question becomes, you know, where are we headed? What's the ultimate purpose of these practices? Well, before we move beyond on Buddhism, just because I think it's worth noting that like that, you know, the Buddhas, there's the four noble truths, right? And and mm-hmm. the and the one of them is about attachment. That basically yeah. like not in the sur- not in the sense of attachment theory as we've been talking about it, but being attached to one's ego, one's goals, one's yeah. goods and possessions, right? That from attachment to things comes suffering. And to disattach sort of psychologically or or whatever, it's too bad that those are the same word because they're really not talking mm-hmm. about the same thing. Mm-hmm. To disattach in the Buddhist sense reduces suffering. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like true. I mean, I just think that that's basically psychologically accurate. It might mm-hmm. not be the whole story, but yeah, if you become less worried about whether or not you're going to get that job promotion, you will suffer less when you don't get the job promotion. Yeah. I mean, it's almost a truism, right? It's like, mm-hmm. it's kind of duh obvious, but then the fact that mindfulness practices can, can sort of manualize that and operationalize that into mindfulness practices that help you reduce your attachment to those outcomes. That's a good skill to have in a yeah. world yeah. where you don't have all that much control actually, right. you know, like, right. so I really like that. It's also interesting to me where, where you're going, which, which is how that diverges Mm-hmm. And I, and it's, it's kind of like a lifelong question for me of like, 
what are the real differences there and what are the consequences of looking that looking at that from a more Christian inflected perspective than a more Buddhism inflected perspective? Yeah, and that's something I've been wrestling with, you know, because I, I recognize there were uh, psychologists were doing a great job of operationalizing Buddhist psychology and then bringing it into clinical psychology. And that, that's what I wanted to do for Christian clients who so yeah. that there could be medi- medi- what I might call meditative diversity, right? Uh, different options for different people so that Christians don't have to Christianize, secularize Buddhist mindfulness. But we meditative can just go diversity. Our- <laughs> what a great. Oh, I love that term. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. So uh, so in terms of, you know, we have Buddhist non-attachment, right? And you're absolutely right. When we let go, right, there, there's a freedom from, I guess, suffering when we we let go of the grip that we never really had on the thing anyway, right? right. That's what creates suffering. For Christians, though, we might talk more about detachment, not non-attachment. And what are we detaching from and in order to do what? So for, for, for Buddhists, I mean, my reading is that it's to ameliorate suffering, right? Mm-hmm. That's a big part of these practices. For Christians, that's a byproduct. That's maybe indirectly, directly, we're, we're, we're shifting our focus from on maybe earthly preoccupations, what the Puritans actually called earthly mindedness to heavenly mindedness or spiritual mindedness. So we're letting go of, of our unilateral self-derived understanding and attachments to free us up, these anxious attachments to free us up to depend on, yield to, lean on God. And, and that's looking at the horizon, right? Um, if we're too focused on our feet, we're not seeing the path ahead. And so that's historically in Christianity, what we've done, there's been a shift or a pivot from our own preoccupations, you know, uh, to dependent on God, to being dependent on God. And so I think the, the various practices are really about cultivating a, a, what I might describe as a deeper communion with God and a deeper contentment in God and it's a relational practice, not a practice on our own. Now, for, for Buddhists might say, you know, well, we're cultivating oneness, so we're not alone. But there isn't a personal God you're relating to, as is the case with Christian meditative and contemplative practices. At the psychological level, within Buddhist thought, there is the idea of the bodhisattva. And that is the person who gets close to enlightenment, but mm-hmm. sort of turns back around and mm. looks at humanity and earth. And sort of re-engages with earth instead of mm-hmm. completely leaving. And they describe mm-hmm. Jesus as a bodhisattva, right? So that so there is there is kind yeah. of a way of you could have like a person engaging in Buddhist inflected mindfulness work with a bodhisattva sort of image involved. That would get sure. you closer to what you're describing as sort of Christian mindfulness practice, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, what I try to do with, with these kinds of practices is try to find common ground. And so, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I'm not as interested in getting into kind of splitting hairs theologically with, with, you know, it's more about how can we bring clients, you know, in my work who, who identify in some way, shape or form as Christian to bring them into a deeper relationship with God for psychological and spiritual benefits. And uh, I would describe it as an indirect method because we're not directly trying to eliminate suffering. What right. we're doing is we're, we're, we're making room for it and, and practicing God's presence in the midst of it. And so uh, that, that I, want, I want to have that common ground. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? 
To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. Well, perfect. You just transitioned me to the, the last thing I wanted to make sure we talked about, which is... Yeah which is this idea of acceptance. Um, and specifically, we haven't really gotten to it yet, but ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, which is a, a therapeutic approach that I um, am finding myself really falling in love with and, and utilizing more and more with clients, even just not not necessarily in the fully manualized version of it, but just the, the ideas of it. Uh, I bring them up all the time. I use it myself personally. Mm-hmm. Just, just give us like your what's the elevator pitch for how, what the mechanism is or what the understanding is with acceptance and commitment therapy. To start, I think we can look at the problem. The problem is often when we try to either control or avoid the inner world, uh, and that not only doesn't work, but it prevents us from living a life of meaning and purpose and living out our values. Uh, And so ACT is very behavioral in the sense that it's about accepting the inner world. And there are a variety of metaphors and practices, um, processes in ACT to do so uh, in order to be more present in the here and now to live out our values. And what are values? They're, you know, personally chosen qualities. Uh, It's been defined in the ACT literature as, you know, personally chosen qualities of ongoing action. So very behaviorally driven principles for living. So uh, what does it look like to be a a loving husband and father? What does it look like to be a compassionate or giving friend, to be a generous person? So the values that we identify, uh, that's what guides life, not our inner experiences, because those can often go in opposite directions. And before you know it, you're doing all you can to avoid pain, which is not realistic because pain will find you wherever you are. Uh, There's and, the Buddhism. And then, and then, yeah, yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, life is suffering. He was right. Yeah, you know, right. that's true. Yeah. You can't avoid it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In graduate school, I started gravitating toward, towards ACT because I thought, I think it's it's one of the more realistic ways yep. of making sense of psychological functioning. The, you know, there's like a beach ball metaphor that said, you know, to, to help us understand our thinking that, you know, trying to eliminate thoughts is like trying to push a beach ball underwater. It just keeps springing back up, right? So all kinds of very creative metaphors to make sense of, you know, the, the challenges inherent in trying to control our thinking, control our emotions, con- try to avoid these things, which don't work. I mean, we, we try our best in life. We all do it. We try to avoid the fancy phrases, uh, experience experiential avoidance to try to un, uh, avoid unpleasant inner experiences and then the corresponding you know uh, experiences in the outer world you know a perfect example would be panic disorder right it's been described in the act literature of uh, panic attacks plus an unwillingness to have panic attacks right the idea that that we not only are preoccupied with that one minute we have a panic attack right and and then 23 hours and 59 minutes of my day, I'm trying to avoid panic attacks that can lead to agoraphobia and an unmanageable life. So ACT is basically about finding ways to make room for the unpleasant inner experiences. They're not always pleasant uh, in order to show up and live a life of purpose uh, because otherwise we're still going to have the symptoms and we're going to miss out on life. And so there's going to be the the double-edged or I should say the, the double whammy of of I, my symptoms are still present and I'm watching other people live their life. Is the best book for people who don't know this to read the, the happiness trap? Is that where you have people start at a lay level? 
Yeah, lay level. And then for clinicians, Zach made simple is, uh, you know, uh, I think Russ Harris does a great job, uh, you know, of, of really taking uh, Steve Hayes's writings and making them very digestible for people who maybe have, don't have the time to do a deep dive into ACT. Yeah. Okay. Well, those will both be in the, in the show notes. So given the background that you've talked about with like, you know, looking at Buddhist practices, looking for Christian contemplative practices, relating this back to working with clients as well as your own story and making sense of your story. How did learning about ACT sort of, where did that click in for you narratively? The searching into the practices from Buddhism and Christianity that came, that flowed out of your experience personally. Yeah. So, so having, you know, personally really uh, experienced sort of this, the deeper trustful surrender, right. And that, that there, there's something that I think is freeing about that to, to kind of let go, to go from clutching to letting go and to, 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 to have a deeper trust in the midst of suffering instead of trying to make that go away. So personally, that was very attractive to me because that was my own experience that, that I was not going to be able to eliminate my pain, but I could make peace with it and find a way to reframe it and to find a way to uh, understand it. So, so that, that emotional pain is a signal that tells us important things, right? Yeah. You know, in, in ACT, they talk about, you know, the, the two-sided coin metaphor that on one side you have pain, on the other side you have your values and that your pain helps you to understand what, what's meaningful to you. What, so, so reframing pain, not that we search for it, it will find us. But when it does, how do I reframe it as maybe at times growth producing, uh, telling me something, revealing something to me so I don't have to wall it off or or push it down or get into a tug of war match with it uh, and do violence to my inner world as if the pain isn't a, par- a valid part of my experience. So, so, so that I think helped me to make peace with all the pain I experienced earlier in life, right? That it probably wasn't going to go away. And, you know, as I raise my kids and, and, you know, my daughter's now 10 years old and, and she's going to be 12 soon. When, when I went through my experience with my dad, I'll probably have some of those painful experiences come up, right. Of, of how, how horrible it was to be all alone during that time, but it could help me to understand what I value and what's meaningful for me and that how relationships are important. So, so I think that was personally something that I came to grips with that acceptance, you know, the, the enact we talk, the, the, the language is sort of the Latin root for acceptance to take what is offered or another maybe definition would be to receive willingly. Am I, am I able to accept the reality of the pains of life and to, to make use of them in ways that are going to deepen my relationships, help me pursue values. So that was personally meaningful. So value language really helped to to answer the question of why do I accept suffering? Why do I accept it? What, for what purpose, right? Is it just because the alternative avoidance doesn't work? Well, no, it's in order to get in the game rather than be on the sidelines of life. Uh, Steve Hayes in his newest book, Liberated Mind, talks about you know moving from pain to purpose, right? Or, or fear to love, that, that these painful experiences can be a catalyst towards deepening what matters most. And so I think that was important for me. And then in the context of the Christian faith, I think pain has helped me to to reach for God and to cry out to God and to lament to God and to recognize that God is present to soothe and comfort me like a like a secure attachment that I didn't have with my with my earthly father. And so instead of seeing that pain equals punishment, it's it's you know in a perfect broken fallen world 
pain, there's purpose in that. And there's, there's a, there's redemption in that. And God can, can work in my life through that. So, so that's kind of, you know, as I've written on faith-based act, uh, the, the newest language I use is really, um, you know, walking with the God of love. Uh, just just over and over and over again, I just recognize the importance of starting and ending with God's love. And that, that, that in, in life, from a faith-based act perspective, it's about accepting the inner world and inviting God, the God of love, to be with us in that in order to walk with God along the roads of life and to be more Christ-like and, you know, being more loving to other people and to, to uh, you know, fulfill God's plan. So awesome. You know, you mentioned experiential avoidance and in this modality, you know, you're, you're trying to reduce experiential avoidance and increase what they call cognitive flexibility, right? So you're, you're able to sort of be in the real world. I like how you talk about it being reality-based. All my favorite uh, approaches to therapy, I like them because they're like, if they're reality-based, I don't just want to like look in the mirror and say, I'm great and try and convince mm-hmm. myself that I'm great when I not, might not be great. You know, mm-hmm. I want to like, hey, oh, I'm involved in a logical contradiction here. Those can't yeah. both be true. The rea- mm-hmm. reality says one of these is false. Mm-hmm. And so I find that this concept of experiential avoidance, I think it it explains so much in my life the maladaptive behaviors I notice in myself, those of other people, loved ones, people who have hurt me. I sometimes ask my clients, you know, if they're talking about their parent or something, like, what is it doing for your mom when she says this or does Mm -hmm. this? And Mm -hmm. another way of saying that is like, what is she experientially avoiding by Mm -hmm. acting this way? And Mm -hmm. that's like a really good lens to sort of like, it's another way of getting at something that is perplexing or causing pain. It's like, oh, well, she's probably trying to avoid, you know, this happened with her and she remembers it this way and and it hurts her to think, you know, what, whatever that answer is that people can give. Yeah. Yeah. But using that as a lens, what are they avoiding by doing this? How That's are they right. avoiding negative feelings or negative experiences by acting this way or saying this thing and to make that the kind of linchpin explanation for behavior that ends up being unhelpful. It's kind of bridging East and West. I mean, it really is bringing in a good chunk of that Buddhist idea of like, yeah, life is suffering. You can't get away from suffering. And if you try to get away from suffering, you're just going to fuck yourself up and everybody else around you. And like, that's kind of what we see and, and act really sort of gets at that. And I find that so interesting. Most of us recognize that avoidance doesn't work. And yet I think we have to be compassionate towards ourselves and others and recognizing that pain is painful, right? And so yeah. it, it makes sense that we're, when, when we, you know, uh, slam a hammer down on our thumb, we're going to pull it back and flinch, right? Or, and then every time maybe we, or we get into a car accident and, and after that, we're going to be, you know, tentative towards driving or i mean life is painful and we want to avoid pain and at the same time i think we recognize that 
avoiding psychological pain does not work and it makes life unmanageable. And yeah, so looking at from a Buddhist perspective, the, you know, the, the, I think wisdom in recognizing that life is suffering and that when we desire things to be different uh, or, or we attach to, uh, you know, this idea that all there is going is to be pleasure, that that creates suffering in a life that's unmanageable. And then in Christianity, that life in a fallen world, life in an imperfect world, life yeah. is painful. And for Christians, you know, uh, who believe Jesus is the suffering servant, that, that suffering is baked into the cake when it comes to, you know, uh, right. God's redemptive plan. There's something redemptive about suffering going to a cross and suffering to reconcile. And so there's there's no way to avoid suffering in Christianity either. So it's it's a part of the the wisdom in these two different traditions, East and West. So we on some level we do need to make peace with suffering. Again, we don't go finding it masochistically. Right. It's gonna find us and when it does, how can we accept it and and maybe at times reframe it and almost like you know one saying in mindfulness is you can't stop the waves, but you can learn how to surf, right? The idea that we can actually use our, our pain to help us understand our values, to help maybe ask God, what are you doing in the midst of this? Real quick, I remember when I was doing my personal psychotherapy for my doctoral program, and I was working with a Jungian analyst. And I remember I was talking about anxiety and worry. And, 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 and at some point in the session, he stopped and just asked me a simple question. You know, what if your anxiety is trying to tell you something? And that would just blew me away because I think historically I had looked at anxiety as something I needed to get rid of yeah. instead of a signal. But if we reframe it, whether it's from a Buddhist perspective or a Christian perspective, uh, that, you know, what is this anxiety or what is God telling me through this anxiety and how can I use this as a catalyst towards being Christ-like, living out God's plan, being Christ-like in my love for other people. I think that's where we begin to see a change in our life. But as long as we try to avoid it, I think that's when things are, are going to lead to impaired functioning. Yeah, I, I did. I wanted to, it's perfect. You mentioned it that way. I wanted to just emphasize that as well. One thing I always say with my clients is like, if you're having a bunch of pain about something, a bunch of anxiety, a big emotional reaction, like we want to mine that for information. That mm -hmm. is a clue. It is a clue in our collaborative detective work as to what's going on with you. So if something is really activating you in some way, it makes you agitated. It makes you feel really depressed. It makes you start to feel super jealous or whatever. Like, okay, we're obviously near something mm -hmm. that is mm -hmm. closer to the beating center of it all. And so let's press in. In order to do that, you got to have some psychological flexibility. You have to build up some resilience in the moment. If in the moment, all you can do is avoid, then you won't be able to go there and you won't be able to learn whatever information that has for you. And that's, that's true right. in a therapy session. It's also just true in regular life. You know, I, you know, you got to be careful what you encourage people to do outside of a therapy room. But like mm -hmm. a very simple thing might be if you notice one of those things and like, oh man, this is making me really X. Uh, do you have a person, a friend, a spouse, a whomever that you can go get a coffee or a beer with and be like, hey, will you talk about this mm -hmm. with me? It seems like there's something here. And like, can you just be a safe person to chat with or listen or whatever? Or you can journal about it by yourself, you know, and see what you find. Like, follow those clues. The time yeah. where you're just having a great old time and you're two beers in and this show's really funny. That's a great experience. I really love having that experience. Mm -hmm. 
you're not going to learn a lot about yourself in that moment. You're going to learn about yourself in the moment where things are falling apart and, and you are surprised by an overwhelming emotional reaction you have to something. That's where you're going to learn about yourself. That's right. It's, it's really kind of a, you know, an open curiosity uh, toward the experience instead of the avoidance or, or for, for some Christians, we might say, you know, what's, what's God doing through this experience? What's God revealing to me through this experience? If we, if, if God is at the center there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Dr. Nab, incredible conversation. Uh, I enjoyed it so, so much. I do have a link to your walking home with God book that will be in the show notes, but where, what else would be a good thing to include for people to engage with your work? Yeah, I have a website, so it's just joshuanab.com. So that's probably the easiest way to, I, I got all, all, most of the stuff that I've been up to uh, doing, it's on that website. So Awesome. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. 